0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for June 2018, volume 56, number six. My name is David Visakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor.
1: And I'm James Cave,
0: editor in chief. In our editorial this month, we have a look at a recent high profile meta analysis that examined the effectiveness of antidepressants.
1: So let's start with the question What did the
0: meta analysis report and why are we interested?
1: So this was in the Lancet earlier in the year. And uh, it did hit the headlines significantly because uh, it suggested that all the answers regarding antidepressants were now sorted out and uh, we could all sort of sleep easy in our beds. So what did they report in the meta-analysis? The primary outcome measure was the efficacy of the response rate. In other words, how, what number of patients would have achieved at least a 50% reduction in the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale and they use an odds ratio, which is difficult because it, it makes it difficult to quite understand the numbers. But that was the main primary outcome. And then they also looked at or tried to compare individual antidepressants with each other. That's right. So they also tried to sort of work out the effectiveness or efficacy and rank the uh, antidepressants in that, uh, in that way. But I suppose our issue is, does this add much to what we're
0: all doing? It's a great piece of work, very thorough brought together lots of studies and gives us some valuable
1: information. But don't antidepressants work? Well, I think that this is the issue. I think there were two things that came out or, or which perhaps we need to keep hold of. First of all, yes, antidepressants are better than placebo. That was clear from the study. The second thing is, although there are possibility and ability to rank them in of efficacy actually it was very very marginal incredibly marginal and really it is far more important I think that we work with our patients on finding the antidepressant that most works for them in the form of you know perhaps it's adverse effects is it a sedating antidepressant is it a non-sedating one those sorts of things may be more important to discuss with our patients when we're making that decision than perhaps worrying about the ranking on this meta-analysis. And always
0: worth reflecting back on the fact that this data is from the ideal world of clinical trials where patients are highly selected, supported, and in
1: a slightly unnatural environment compared with what you see in general practice. Absolutely. And I think also some of the studies were pharmaceutically sponsored studies where they compared one antidepressant with another. And perhaps there may have been element of bias involved in those too.
0: So bottom line, they're better than placebo, or the evidence suggests that from clinical trials, they are better than placebo, but actually there's a lot of work in supporting patients to take antidepressants effectively, rather than just worrying about which one.
1: Yeah, as the old adage goes, the most effective medication is the one the patient takes.
0: Excellent, thank you very much. Our first main article reviews a combination analgesic
1: So what is it? What are the two components? So this is a combination of tramadol, which obviously is an opioid, and dexketoprofen, a nonsteroidal. And let's clear up the license. What is it licensed for? So it's licensed for the short-term treatment of moderately severe pain in adults. So
0: it's short-term acute pain, and I think its maximum duration is five days. The evidence for it, where does it come from? So
1: there's a Cochrane review, but the Cochrane review looks at three randomized controlled trials, about 1,800 patients. And these three trials were all in post-operative patients. Uh, One group had had, uh, wisdom teeth extraction, one group had had total hip replacements, and the other hysterectomies. So this is all post-operative intra-hospital treatment. And compared against...? So they just compared it against placebo and also the individual, in some of the studies, the individual components of it. So in some studies, they compared the combination with individual tramadol or dextoketoprofen.
0: And I think one of the studies also used an active
1: comparator with ibuprofen in there as well. Yes, there was one study that did that. So the results? So they looked at the proportion of patients who achieved a 50% reduction in pain using a visual analogue scale. Over six hours and in the placebo-controlled, randomised controlled trials, 66% of the combination drug achieved that versus 32% in the placebo, which if you like your numbers needed to treat is about three. So it prove that it works yes given that each of the drugs already has a license for the treatment of pain it would have been a bit of a mistake if, if it didn't work against placebo they also compared um, the individual components and to give you a similar sort of idea so tramadol alone in that study you've got a 45 percent of patients reach that 50 percent reduction and with dexketoprofen alone 53 percent to achieve that 50 percent reduction in their pain
0: but perhaps the big question is, does it really have a role in primary care?
1: Absolutely. I mean, these are this, this, it's a combination of two classes of drugs that we're increasingly wary of. Uh, it has no primary care currently uh, track record. It's not been compared with any other agents that we commonly use in primary care. And as you say, it's only been licensed for very short term use. So at the moment, it's perhaps something which we might find that hospitals pick up for post-operative care. But, you know, this is wait to see, really. And there is still a bottom
0: line of why would you bother with a combination product when actually if you're really interested in titrating somebody's analgesia, you might want to use separate components and titrate them individually.
1: A- absolutely right. That's right.
0: Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month discusses the dose of paracetamol we should be using in... Perhaps some older people. What's the background to this?
1: So this is—I mean, this is an interesting sort of story that's been grumbling for a while now. You know, is paracetamol safe? And I think things began to sort of come out of the woodwork a little bit with the nice guidance on the management of osteoarthritis when that came out some years back. They removed paracetamol as being even first line in the management of it, concerned as they were with possible side effects. And I think, you know, there are just increasingly perhaps cohort studies, but there are studies and observations which have perhaps just linked the concept that paracetamol might be linked to renal disease and GI bleeding, and just just sort of of concerns building up that there may be more to this than meets the eye.
0: So we thought we'd have a look at this and see whether the standard dosing advice, which everyone kind of learns from childhood, which is two tablets or one gram four times a day is the maximum dose. Is that a standard dose that should apply to everybody? So we start by looking a bit at the comparison with the dosing instructions for the intravenous product. Now, of course, bioavailability differences between the oral and
1: intravenous are clearly of interest, but what's the dosing instruction for the intravenous product? So interesting enough, you know, as you said, dosing for adults is very simple, 0.5 to 1 gram QDS, doesn't matter about any other aspect to the patient but the IV dose has got much more complex guidance based on on weight particularly warnings especially if the patient is under 50 kilos uh, and also issues around frailty as well so it's interesting there is this you know concern even in the SPC and has been for some time about IV dosing versus versus oral dosing and when we looked or tried to look at some of the evidence obviously there's a bit of a
0: lack of or we found a lack of evidence on to give us a clear steer on this but there seemed to be some pattern that particularly if you look at pharmacokinetics in frail elderly people
1: then you might have
0: some concerns
1: yes i think what's interesting is there have you know as you say what it's always a dearth of information sometimes but we have got some pharmacokinetic studies where they've compared healthy young people and blood levels of paracetamol versus elderly patients and what you can demonstrate is that yes you definitely start seeing higher levels in the elderly showing that they are struggling to clear perhaps um, their paracetamol in quite the same way as you did when you were younger.
0: And we also know that the, the, the well-known profile of liver damage with paracetamol certainly in over significant overdose is a real problem but there is some evidence as well that you don't have to have that much to start to cause liver problems and if you've got a reduced ability to clear paracetamol then perhaps you might be at higher risk of long of liver problems
1: yes i, I mean i think as you say there's that we've got no hard evidence here but i think what a lot of um, gps primary care in fact all doctors will recognize that some particularly elderly patients will tell you that one paracetamol does the trick and i've always thought and often said to my patients oh you know Take two, it's much better, you know, one's never going to do any good, take two. And actually now I, I think I'm going to have to go back and say, yeah, if one's enough, that's absolutely fine. And it may be in frail elderly patients, just, you know, 500 milligrams QDS may be a better dose to think about. And if it works for them, then, then you know, that would be much better than giving them the full adult dose. So perhaps
0: looking for patients who are low weight on complex multimorbidity for whom a lower dose might be worth considering.
1: Absolutely, yes. You know, and looking particularly, you know, renal or hepatic impairment.
0: And with that goes some, some form of re-education because we're also used to using one gram QDS four times a day. Th- there's a message out there that actually lower maximum dose is appropriate and we should be encouraging pharmacists,
1: patients, carers, GPs, not to go above that. That's right. And I think it also has implications with a lot of the dual analgesics particularly the codeine based ones because obviously you know you are giving the maximum dose of paracetamol very often in those situations and i think that's a you know case in point where it may well be that we have to think about splitting those up and making sure that we're not giving too much paracetamol but perhaps giving a different dose of codeine so there is going to be a had to be a change in balance perhaps to make sure we get these things right
0: Okay, thank you very much. To read this and any of our articles, please see our website, dtb.bmj.com.